Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this specialist series, Explore How to Plan an Expedition, a series created for the Royal Geographical Society. I'm Matt Pycroft, an expedition specialist, filmmaker and photographer, and I've been going on expeditions under various banners for 15 years. I also sit on the council of the RGS. Episode 6 continues our Camp Life mini-series, where we speak to a single individual about a specific type of expedition terrain. In this polar episode, our guest is Felicity Aston, who you may recognise from our 5Ps episode. In this episode, I talk to Felicity about polar accessibility, navigation, managing water, avoiding injuries and her tips and tricks for dealing with extreme temperatures. Felicity is a British polar explorer, author, speaker and student research scientist. In 2012, she became the first woman to ski alone across Antarctica. Starting out as a meteorologist for the British Antarctic Survey, her expeditions have included the first British women's crossing of Greenland, a 6,000-kilometre drive to the South Pole, a 36,000-kilometre drive to the Pole of Cold, and leading international teams of women on ski expeditions to both the North and South Poles. In 2015, she was awarded the Queen's Polar Medal and was appointed an MBE for services to polar exploration. Finally, if you're looking for support with planning your own expedition or field research project, then head to rgs.org to begin the journey. Right, let's get started with episode six of How to Plan an Expedition. So... You have already appeared in this podcast series. I'm um, aware that most people who are listening will know who you are, but please, for those who haven't, can you introduce yourself and tell me who you are, what you do, and your experience in polar environments? My name is Felicity Aston, and I started off as a meteorologist with the British Antarctic Survey and spent uh, three years posted to a research station in Antarctica. But then after that, I started putting together my own expeditions. So I've led um, expeditions in the Arctic and the Antarctic over the last 25 years. Um, but yeah, so putting together expeditions for all sorts of objectives and reasons, whether it be scientific fieldwork, um, sporting objectives, or uh, supporting film uh, productions and things like that. So all sorts of reasons. Ace, and how do you think traveling in polar environments differs from traveling in other remote or difficult to access areas? I mean, recently I put together an expedition to uh, ski to the North Pole and the training expeditions that we did for that, one was in Iceland on in a glacial terrain, um, nothing unusual about that. But then another one was in uh uh, was in the Arabian Peninsula in the desert amongst the dunes. And a lot of people said, well, you know, how can you take a polar expedition to the desert? Um, but actually, there's a lot in common there. You know, a, a lot of the the strands, um, endurance and uh, being as self-sufficient as possible and the planning that goes into it, um, you know, that's pretty similar no matter what environment you're going into. I think what makes the polar environment and, you know, we say polar, but actually the Arctic and the Antarctic are very, very different. Um, you know, Antarctica is a lot more remote and therefore um, logistics are a lot more difficult, a lot scarcer. So your options are very, very small and much more expensive. Um, but then in the Arctic, you know, you're you're talking about somewhere that is that belongs to somebody. You know, there are, there are native um, populations there. Um, 
and government control and things like that. So you're in somebody else's backyard. Um, so the, the two places are very different. Uh, Antarctica is characterized by the lack of wildlife. Um, the, uh, the Arctic, you know, there's there's wildlife all around you everywhere. And so you'll care about um, the environmental impact you're having on people, environment and wildlife is very different depending on whether you're going north or south. Um yeah, so I mean, you know, you could argue that there is nothing that particularly makes your approach to the polar regions any different to any other extreme environment that you're going to. There's huge similarities between them all. Um, but I think Antarctica in particular is uh, very distinct because of the way that it's managed today and the fact that it is still really remote. Um, its closest similarity will probably be going to the bottom of the oceans or to another planet. Um, so that probably means that there's a slightly different approach to Antarctica than there is to anywhere else. I think you touched on something there as well around cost being potentially prohibitive. I think you're talking in the you know tens or hundreds of thousands for any trip. Um, whereas Arctic regions, jungles, deserts, etc., you could technically do things for what, you know, in inverted commas, cheap, you know, at lower end of the cost. Is that fair? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, Antarctica is an expensive place and and it really should be um, because it reflects the reality um, of the infrastructure of Antarctica. You know, unlike a lot of other places in the world, there is no existing infrastructure. And so you're not just buying a seat on a plane, for example, if you fly to Antarctica, you are paying a portion contributing um, to the cost of having that runway in Antarctica, of having the personnel there that maintain that runway, um, of chartering the planes and the crews and uh, putting in place what uh, maintains their safety. Um, you know, it's often forgotten, I think, particularly in polar logistics by people that are taking part in these services that are offered is that, you know, if you go out to Antarctica and get yourself into a position where you need to be rescued, um, you know, that's other people that are putting their lives at risk in a very real way. I mean, it wasn't too long ago, the last horrific air accident um, in Antarctica. And, uh, you know, that there is no air traffic control there. There is no sort of beacons that they fly by. It's all done, um, we call it visual rules. They're, they're all flying by sight, by what they can see. Um, and it's a very confusing place to do that. Like lots of weather. You know, so people really are putting themselves at risk in order to enable you to go and do what you're doing. And um, I think that has to be constantly present in your mind when you're making judgment calls about whether you are prepared enough, whether you're experienced enough, whether your team is competent enough, um, you know, whether it is right for you to go and do whatever it is that you're planning to do. I'm going to go off piece straight away off of my, I have scripted questions, but, um, and this is potentially controversial, but I, you know, I, I'm genuinely interested in your thoughts on it. I think to some extent, certain Antarctic expeditions are incredibly accessible for people with low technical skills, but high levels of fitness, um, compared to say climbing a big wall or potentially traveling through a jungle. Really, there's an element of, um, you know, essentially <laughs> cross-country skiing, um, a long way with a heavy pulk, you know, requiring heavy fitness and 
lots of skills around campcraft. But does that create an environment where people are getting into the sorts of things that they perhaps shouldn't be doing too early on in their careers or not? Um, I, I think it depends. I mean, if you're talking about someone who is guided, I don't think it matters what environment you're in. Um, that's all down to the guide, the ability of the guide, but also their own attitude to what it is right to do or not do in terms of who you take on a trip. And, you know, that's a big argument that's very visible in places like Everest, for example, and the the big mountains and, um, you know, in the polar regions too. Um, if you're talking about people that are going independently, um, the, the filter for that really has been the operators themselves, I would say, up until this point. So uh, ALE and then the operators that operate through East Antarctica, um, through Novo Runway um, mostly, um, you know, they've had ultimate say on whether a person can come and operate independently in Antarctica or not. So let's go into specifics. Um, and some of them I think we'll, we'll cover for a little while and some of them might be quick, quick quips. But um, navigation, you know, specifics for polar travel, I'm aware that over the last 100 years it has changed so significantly that it's unrecognisable. But what are the methods of navigating in polar environments? What are the challenges? What's the tech? How do we do it? Mm. people say oh it's not like it was 100 years ago it's so much easier now because you've got all this modern kit but you know if you look at modern kits it's kind of gone full circle in that okay we've got things like Gore-Tex and, and windproof materials which are huge but we had Ventile and you know things work really well and I mean when I went to the British Antarctic Survey the issued kit we were given was a, a Ventile smock um you know i mean we were wearing leather and um leather boots and and cotton fabrics and canvas and and things like that so a lot of it has gone full circle but the big advantage the two big advantages that we have today over the explorers of 100 years ago in the polar regions is firstly our knowledge of the human body about how to provide it nutrition how to prepare it um you know we know so much more about the way our body works and what makes it work in a certain way and what makes it less successful. Um, and that's a huge advantage over people that were going off 100 years ago with lead-lined cans of pemmican and fat. You know, it, it's just a, it's a huge advantage. And the second big advantage that we have is satellites. Um, because satellites allow us to uh, stay in contact. So we have satellite communications and uh, we have satellite navigation and those are huge advantages. So uh, I use, when I go out, um, I use a mix of compasses and, uh, and, and GPS, GPS devices. And the reason is, is that neither one gives you everything that you need. Um, so because when you're in the polar regions, you tend to, I mean, it depends where you're going, but you tend to be uh, close to the magnetic poles of the earth. It means that compasses can be quite difficult to use in a way that you would use them, you know, in mid-latitudes because you have to do so much correction um, to, to what the compass is telling you. And those corrections change Hugely in some cases and very rapidly. And so if you're going out to do an expedition where you're really pushing yourself in terms of exhaustion, your mental capacity to be able to 
reliably work out all of those mathematical equations and everything else it, and and to be aware of what you're doing is really impaired so uh I tend to rely more on uh, satellite navigation, um, but with the technology that we have, it's the batteries. You know, batteries run down really. All of all GPSs need some kind of power, and uh, you know, there's a limit to how many batteries you can take out with you, and in some cases, a limit to what you can get with uh, solar panels. Not because of the technology of the solar panels, but because of the amount of sunlight that you're getting at high latitudes in some instances. So, um, you know that's the drawback of using of using GPSs. So I tend to use a mix. I use GPS to give me spot locations, which you can't get with a compass. So a GPS will tell me exactly my location, and I can report that to people. I can record that. I can know exactly where I am on the surface of the planet. Um, but then, in terms of telling me which way to go, I'll tend to use um, a compass as much as possible, and then I'll try and use other other means of doing that too so sometimes you're using the position of the sun to navigate by sometimes the wind um i mean in some environments it's easier to do that than others so in antarctica for example you get very directional wind that you know for whole days can be blowing from exactly the same direction and exactly the same strength whereas elsewhere it might be that you know the wind's so changeable um and keeps coming in and out that you can't use that so um so yeah, it, the satellites are hugely important for that and for communication. You know, that's the big difference between going out on an expedition now and a hundred years ago is that you can tell people in almost real time what's going on. Um, whereas a hundred years ago, you had to wait three or four years until that explorer came back, or perhaps they died along the way. <laughs> Uh, and you never got to hear and then it's a huge mystery as in Franklin or Amelia Earhart or you know all sorts of um, stories um, and and I think you know we're, we're very fond of sort of bashing social media and all the negatives that undoubtedly brings to uh, human society but you know we can't forget also the enormous benefits I mean there are so many more people who know so much more about the polar regions than they would have done a hundred years ago. And that's because maybe they followed an expedition or they've watched a TV program or in any number of ways, they've got information about what that is like. Um, and partly through communication and, and social media. So um, huge benefits too. Brilliant. Let's talk about water. So I think in terms of, you know, we're, we're surrounded by it, right? Frozen water everywhere. Um how do you manage water availability? How much do you need? What do you carry during the day? Is it safe, etc.? Uh, so in most polar environments, your only source of water is the snow and ice around you uh, that you melt in order to make fresh water. Um, and generally speaking, you need about four litres of water per person per day as a, as a kind of minimum. And uh, and depending on the characteristics of the snow and ice around you, that can be a huge amount of snow to melt in order to make 
um, sufficient amounts of water. So you can get snow that's really wet and densely packed. And when you melt that, that will give you more water using less snow than if you're somewhere like Antarctica that's very dry and the snow is very powdery. So even if you try and make a snowball with it, it doesn't stick together. It just falls apart like dust. And you need a lot of that snow uh, to, to, to make water. Um and the complication that gives you when you're organizing an expedition is, okay, well, how much fuel do I need to melt that snow to make that water? And that's the real kind of impact because the amount of water that person needs is, you know, you you can't change that. Um, and in fact, you know, dehydration, it's, it's ironic, but dehydration is a real problem on polar expeditions because there's something odd in the psyche that when you're surrounded by frozen water, you tend to forget to drink. You kind of assume that if you're cold, you're not thirsty. Um, you know, whereas if you're in a hot environment, people are swigging away at water all the time. There's kind of like an, a constant trigger around you that makes you drink. Whereas in the polar environments, you have to kind of remember to drink. There isn't that, that trigger to, to do it. Um, and uh yeah and and the so the the complication for logistics is how much fuel you need in order to melt that much water and it means that you know when you're in camp and you're using stoves and you're using fuel you have to really minimize the amount of fuel that you're using you can't just have that stove um blasting away using up all your fuel um the whole time that you're camped because you would have to take a limiting amount of fuel with you which is too heavy um so you come up with all sorts of strategies to reduce that. Like you never boil water because that's pointless. You just need to melt snow. So you only make the stove hot enough to melt that snow. And then once that snow is liquid water, you put it straight into containers. You don't boil it. Even if you want to make something hot, you come up with strategies to reduce the amount of fuel. So you never boil water, even if you're making yourself a, a hot cup of something or other, you make it as hot as it needs to be and and then you stop it. Um, and even, you know, if you're going to the extremes, things like uh, eating your dinner in your sleeping bag so that, you know, you've boiled just or you've warmed up just enough water in order to put into your dehydrated meals and then you seal that bag up while the meal reconstitutes and while it's reconstituting you get yourself in your sleeping bags then you eat your meal in your sleeping bag and all the body heat that is then produced from that meal um, goes into your sleeping bag and keeping you warm rather than just being lost to the air in your tent um, so you can get endlessly technical about it and you find that the more you do it the more ideas you get of how to make it more efficient um, in all sorts of ways. I think it's worth putting the disclaimer in is if you are going to take the um, conventional wisdom of keeping your freeze-dried food in your armpits while it reconstitutes, that sometimes you end up smelling of Jalfrezi for six weeks. But <laughs> not that that's happened to me, obviously. Well, some expeditions I've been on, the smell of Jalfrezi would be a blessed relief from yeah. <laughs> the actual reality of the smell. Six weeks in a tent, depending <laughs> on your tent mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was once in a portalage with somebody who smelt like Jalfrezi for a very, very long time. Um, okay, cool. Let's just keep moving. So, cold and weather challenges are obviously one of the major ones. So, how do we mitigate against the obvious extreme cold temperatures um, in all the different ways? And what are the major threats, the things that we don't think about? 
you can learn about the specifics of cold injuries. And they range from things that are very obvious and talked about a lot, things like frostbite um, and hypothermia, uh, down to things that are less talked about, like dehydration. Um, and uh, there's lots that you can do to prevent those things happening, um, and as well as uh, things that you can do to um, help injuries once, once they've occurred. Um, but I, I think the thing to say about all sorts of cold injuries is that it's not just about the clothing that you're wearing or the equipment that you're using. It's also about the condition of your body and the condition of your mind partially too. Um, so if you are extremely dehydrated, for example, or if you haven't eaten, then you're more susceptible to um, getting a cold injury of some kind and less able to respond well to treatment than if you've looked after your body. Um, and then things like, you know, this is this is my favorite. Sorry, you've given me the opportunity to get anyone who knows me or certainly anyone who's traveled on an expedition with me is now groaning aloud as I'm going, moisturize your face. <laughs> I'm always <laughs> taking moisturizer, particularly to Antarctica. And some teams that I've traveled with, this is the first time they've ever been asked to put moisturizer on their face, you know, and they'll dip their finger in and sort of smear a line across their forehead like it's war paint. And it's like, no, you need a big you know handful of this and rub it all in your face but there's a reason i mean i hate to fall on gender stereotypes but there's a reason why a lot of male teams come into the south pole looking like they've had their face dipped in acid and then you know the a women's team comes along and they're looking all bright and fresh and like how is this possible well it's because they're putting moisturizer on their face and using lip balm uh, there does seem to be a residual male resistance to putting on moisturizer and lip balm in some in some cases generalizing terribly but i'll play with that i'll support it i i my controversial thing that i'll get lots of emails about is i think that particularly men see a cold injury as a badge of honor because that's what polar explorers get and actually it was i won't say who it was but one of my expedition mentors said to me that in these environments in the modern world these injuries are absolutely not badges of honor like we have everything we need to prevent them from happening they're not failures necessarily but there is some sort of failure attached to them you know there's no excuse for them in the modern world and i i've stuck by that for 10 years I failed. Yeah, uh, I've had a very <laughs> similar experience sort of early on in my polar career, if you like. I I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, work with a number of Norwegian ex-special forces um, people. And the Norwegian attitude to frostbite is that it's a mark of incompetence. Like there is no excuse for, for getting frostbite. And, uh, and yeah, you, you do notice it's a particularly British attitude, this idea that you need to you know have bits of you dropping off otherwise you clearly haven't tried hard enough but the, the Norwegians that I worked with they they all had in common this attitude that um you know you have to not just survive this environment you have to be comfortable in it that's when you knew that you were an expert was that you were comfortable you were enjoying being in this place and, you know, that was a real difference for me because up until then, I'd been surrounded by people for whom it was all about the stoic endurance. It was about the suffering. You know, you needed to suffer to prove that you were doing something really hard and and tough, rough and tough. Um, and so, you know, I saw uh, Norwegian colleagues like warming up water bottles 
and putting those water bottles in their boots to warm up their boots before they put them on. And, you know, using water bottles in their sleeping bags. And, you know, I had British colleagues that would go, oh, you know, namby-pamby, that's a waste of time. But I was like, that's genius. That means that your sleeping bag is warm when you get in it. That means that your boots aren't frozen solid when you're putting your feet in. That means that you might not, you know, be as susceptible to getting some frostbite or cold injuries on your feet because you're in frozen boots. It made a lot of sense to me. And so... um, yeah, it, it really uh, rang true. And it's been something that I've tried to stick to um, ever since. Oh, I, I would have been the bane of your life as a guide in, early on in my career because I had that stoic British hard man thing, which I've now luckily binned off. Um, but, you know, my fingers used to fall apart. They'd just fall to pieces and they'd be bleeding raw and I'd put super glue on them because I was hard. And I'd be like, yeah, check me out. And now... My fingers don't bleed on the expedition anymore because I moisturised them, you know. I do uh, remember, um, you know, a story where it was someone who I was really looking forward to working with. I thought, oh, it'd be really amazing to see, you know, their attitude to how to pull together a team, how to... But unfortunately, you know, what transpired was a masterclass in how not to do it and to do it to the point of being dangerous to yourself and to others. And it came down to blisters. You know, I'm always saying that it doesn't matter what fancy bit of kit you've got. If your feet are too painful to walk on, your expedition is over. You know, there is nothing that can bring that back. And uh, this was a classic case of not looking at your feet. You know, it's amazing how many people go on expedition and for weeks they will not have seen the skin of their feet. And it, like, this is your most precious bit of kit. Without this bit of kit, your feet... Um, you're not going anywhere. So every day you have to look at your feet. And if there is an issue, you have to sort it, you know, blisters being the classic, um, you know, and in this case, it was a blister that was ignored, wasn't mentioned, wasn't looked at until the point where the person involved could not move. And uh, finally, their feet were revealed and it was huge, like to the bone infection in in these feet, uh, which there's no way that in the field you can mend that. Um, But, uh, you know, and then all the kind of excuses, oh, no, it's not about his feet. It's that he's got pneumonia. That's why, you know, he can't carry on or some some other reason. And uh, um, but it was so silly because it's so uh, uh, avoidable. It's just about focusing, you know, where should your attention be? Focusing on the things that really matter and, uh, you know, and being honest with people. I mean, this is where the teamwork comes in, is that if you're in a team environment where any issue is seen seen as some kind of weakness and, you know, instant judgment and, um, you know, then in that kind of environment, people won't be open about problems that they've got because they'll be worried that you're going to say, right, you're off the team or you have to leave or, you know, that they'll be blamed somehow for uh, for what's going on. And, you know, if you have, and that environment can be dangerous. You know, if people are not saying, I've got a blister, I need to sort it today rather than rushing out the tent first thing, um, you know, then down the track, it's it's a massive problem. So, you know, all of this, although we're talking about the technical bits of kit and strategy and and what you do and that knowledge, you know, a lot of it comes down to the team that you're creating and the the culture and communication within that group of people. Um, because if that's wrong, then all of these other things can very easily go wrong to the point of no return. 
No, I, I think you're absolutely right to raise that point. I think that's it, it comes down to the core of it, doesn't it? And it is slightly off topic, but you can sort of Google the right gear to wear, but really... Yeah, but I'd pick you up on that because I'd say, but you have to know how to use it. You know, you can buy the most expensive down sleeping bag, for example. But if you don't understand how a sleeping bag works and you've bought one that's too big for you, you've bought one that's too small for you, or when you're using that sleeping bag, you know, you're putting on all your clothes and then getting in your sleeping bag and not really realizing, okay, that's, that goes against the way a sleeping bag works. You know, if you don't know how these bits of kit, which are seemingly very simple and straightforward, if you don't know how they work, and if you don't know how to make them work in the most efficient way for you, I mean, with sleeping bags, this is very, you know, filling up any extra space with bits of kit and blah, 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 you know, then it's not going to help you. And I think this is cycles back to what we were saying at the beginning about, you know, polar expeditions, I think, are seen as something that, oh, you just get the recipe ingredients, put them together, and bye-bye, you can go off and do this. But this is where the experience plays a really important part because if you've been out and used a sleeping bag in minus 40, minus 60, whatever, then you know what you're looking for. You know how to use use that kit. You know the pitfalls and you know how to make them right if they happen. Um, And I think it's the same with all bits of kit. Boots, coats, yes, the kit itself is spectacular, but unless you know how to use it, it's not going to do you any good. But I think, you know, the whole thing about equipment is quite toxic in many ways because it is so people get so passionate about what is the right bit of kit to use and more importantly what is the wrong bit of kit to use and you know more than once I have turned up in a kind of base camp area with a team and we've had the kit that we've put together and other people have expressed very strongly not only is that the wrong kit that you've got but it's dangerous to have that bit of kit that you've got and you know that's where you know I I start getting a bit annoyed because (laughs) you know kit is so individual and so different and I think you know as long as you know that kit you've tested that kit you've made a conscious decision that that is the best kit for you then you know great you know go go with it it's far better that than you just buy identikit what that polar guide or whatever has got and then expect it to work for you in the same way. Um, And one of the things I've loved about the expedition teams that I've put together is that the way I do things is constantly challenged and adapted by those that I'm with. And this is why I say every expedition is different. And so you have to have a slightly different way of doing things. So now when I bring a new team together, you know, I show them the way that I do things in the tent and in the camp. And I just say, I make it very clear, this is a starting point. You know, now we're going to try doing it this way and you're going to do it this way for long enough until you start to think, hang on a minute, if we did it in this order or if we did this first or if we did it round like this, this would be much easier or this would be better for me for some reason. And, and you know, and so slowly a new way of doing things evolves that is right for that team of people. And, and I love that because it means that it's constantly evolving and we avoid getting stuck in this rut of I mean I remember when I used to first go out and I had you know these amazing people showing me how they did things but it was always brought about as you must put olive oil in your porridge every morning otherwise you're gonna die and 
miserable trying to eat oily, greasy porridge every morning. It's certainly not putting me in a good frame of mind for, you know, getting out. Or you must eat frozen cubes of butter. That was another one. It was like, this is disgusting. (laughs) This is making me want to quit just the fact that you're forcing me to do this every day. And it's not necessary. There's so many other ways you can go about it. And, uh, you know, and there are all sorts of different things. You sweat, you die was another one, which was kind of, you know, I can see why they were saying that. And yes, that is, you know, if you're sweat, if you're so hot that you're sweating, then your layers get wet. And then when you stop moving or doing whatever it is that you're doing, you get very cold very quickly. And then you could cool down to the point where you're in a point of danger. Um, so I get it. But expressing that as you sweat, you die, just made everyone terrified. <laughs> and, you know, constantly, um, yeah, in a state of anxiety. So it wasn't necessarily, um, it, it was very counterproductive. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you're so right. Let's talk about what well, we haven't talked about, um, methods of travel. So how do you actually move around in these environments? Well, the, the method of travel in the polar regions is constantly evolving. So, and it, But it's interesting that it also cycles right back to the beginning. So initially, you know, your only options were things like uh, ski travel, Um But then the early explorers, your Scots and Amundsens, um, they were really active in trying new modes of transport. So they took motor cars down there, they took ponies, they took dogs, they took all sorts of different methods of transport. Um, But, you know, some failed, some were good. Uh, Dogs were particularly successful in Antarctica, although at the start it was thought that they wouldn't be, but they were were great. But then you get to sort of like the 90s and uh, there's a rule about not having any non-native species in Antarctica, in an environment that's so isolated and that has lots of very fragile wildlife of its own. Um, you know, t- constantly introducing new species puts that under threat. So um, all the dogs were removed. So that was removed as an option for transport. And so you went back to looking at skis and motorised transport. And, you know, motorised transport have moved on. So then you get a lot of uh, quite wacky um, uh, vehicles, actually, in the sort of 50s and 60s, I think it was. There's one that's being looked for at the minute because it was left to sort of be swallowed by the ice. But it was this very... Thunderbirds looking kind of almost it looked like a flying saucer on uh, on caterpillar tracks with all sorts of living quarters and bubbles sticking out of it and everything. They're trying to find the remains of it. I really hope that they do because it'll be amazing to see it. Um, but aircraft as well um, starts to be used extensively in the polar regions. And again, you know, they started to fly commercial aircraft into Antarctica, and then there was a huge tragic uh, disaster with a lot of loss of life. And so uh, they pulled back on the air traffic. Uh, but now, you know, technology has moved on. So different types of aircraft flying into Antarctica that makes um, things more accessible. Uh, so your options now are much better than they ever have been before, because there's also been a bit of revolution in terms of wheeled transport, which I was a little bit involved with um, at the beginning, back in the sort of 2011, 2012 sort of period. Um, and so this is using, uh, you know, modern engines with modern emission caps and things um, being used in Antarctica and replacing sort of big, heavy 
bulldozers and and machinery that are not quite so environmentally friendly. Um, So you're seeing different methods of travel. You're seeing sort of quick and light, as well as the uh, more well-established heavy and slow methods of of travel. And then with skis, you've got the advent of kites and uh, foils and all sorts of different ways to help you um, propel across the surface. Um, What else have you had? You've had people on cycles, bike cycles, hand cycles, um, tricycles, all sorts of different modes of transport have been tried. And, you know, trying a new method of travel has become a purpose of an expedition in its own right in some cases. So, um, yeah, it's really exciting. There's lots of different options out there. And if you do a little bit of research, you can find um lots of different choices to make but the the classic is still man hauling so um on skis dragging your sledge behind you people have tried creating kind of sledge caravans where you you kind of crawl into rather than unpacking your sledge and erecting a tent at the end of each day you um crawl inside your sledge and it's like a little caravan behind you but that's never seemed to really be very successful um and then the kiting side of things, you know, the, the equipment and uh, and the skill of the people using kites have become a lot more accessible and uh, and a lot more successful as well. So, you know, some really large distances can be covered, and of course, if you can cover larger distances, then more options for where you might be able to go open up. So, yeah, it's an exciting time to to be in Antarctica, particularly. Um, because there's a lot of options. Nice. Campcraft in cold environments. What are the the top tips, the top don't do's, and the method, essentially? Well, resonating with the title of this episode, Any Fall Can Be Cold, I think the top tip for campcraft is that you've got to make yourself comfortable. Um, you know, this... this <laughs> This vision of sort of being sat in a cold, damp tent, um, never be, because the result is, is that you are never comfortable at any point throughout the day. You know, there has to be, I think, for good kind of mental well-being and therefore good kind of determination, motivation, drive, and ultimately the success of your expedition. There has to be at least one point in every day where you feel comfortable, where you are warm and dry and at rest. Um, and so it makes sense that, you know, you make your tent, you make the effort, you go to the extra lengths to make that tent a comfortable place to be. It is literally your home on the ice. And, uh, so we do things like we get our sleeping mats and kind of almost weave them into a bit of a cover that covers the entire tent floor so that then that tent, you know, people can be sitting comfortably wherever in the tent and you can get the whole team together or, um, and uh, we have an area that's a kitchen and, you know, so that area is completely separate, but it's inside the tent. And again, that's so that you can be comfortable. If you're having to cook outside in really cold temperatures and bring everything into the tent, um, that's pretty miserable and means that nobody is completely happy. Um, yeah, and just take uh, take time to dry out your kit, 
to we do a thing where in the evenings we zip up the tent and make the inside of that tent really super hot, which you can do with these little camp stoves um, quite easily and quickly. So it doesn't take a huge amount of fuel, but it, you get it hot enough to the point where you are sitting there in your thermals and you want to take your thermals off. That's the point at which, okay, we're now in our nice little warm bubble and everyone is dry, they are warm, they are happy. And slowly it cools down and you all have to get in your sleeping bags and get some sleep and whatever, but it just means means that at least one point in every day you are warm dry and comfortable and what about the role of guides i think whether we're looking at kind of an adventurous expedition where the goal is just to 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 do something for enjoyment or challenge versus scientific expedition how important is it to take a guide and when when would you versus wouldn't you um yeah i mean that that's um it is so depends on your so if you are going to do a scientific research expedition um in a country that isn't your own um you know i think there is a sort of imperative there to involve or collaborate with um people whose country you are going to and uh that's kind of quickly becoming a sort of standard really is that um you need to involve local people in some way. It might be that you employ a guide. I mean, my preference would always be um, that you would involve someone in the expedition team so that they have some kind of ownership and feeling of you know pride in what they're doing rather than just being drafted on to show you the right way or the best places or to be a fixer. Um, with uh, with the polar regions, of course, with Antarctica, you know, there is no Antarctica belongs to nobody, and there has never been a native population of Antarctica. So, um, it's a little bit of a different scenario. And there, whether or not you take a guide, is really down to what you want to get out of this journey, and that largely, I guess, depends on your previous experience and and level of confidence. Um, you know, if if you are employing a guide, I think there's a whole raft of things that you need to take into consideration. If you are employing a guide, you know, it's worth doing the work, doing the effort to make sure you've got the right person. Um, because if you end up with a guide that really doesn't fit with your team or that uh, doesn't understand your, your goals or your objectives, you know, there can be a mismatch there that can be... Um, in the worst case scenario, can mean that your expedition ends up in in failure. Um, but even on a on a lighter level, can mean that perhaps you haven't enjoyed that experience as much as you would have done if you, a different person had been your guide. So talk to a number of different people and, um, and make sure you're getting the right person um, that that suits what you want to do. Uh, if you decide to go without a guide. I think you have to be very aware of of what you're taking on and the responsibility that you're taking on. Uh, you know, it's not something to be done lightly. Um, but I, I think it's also worth being aware of what extra you get out of that. You know, if you have, I have travelled so many times with people who have only previously travelled with guides. And, um, you know, then when there isn't a guide there, it's a very different feel. It's a very different set of circumstances and the dynamics within the group are very different as well you know you you're not always um deferring 
to somebody else. You know, you are the group of people on the ice that have to make these decisions um, and have to decide ultimately, you know, you are then resp- responsible for for the outcome of, of that journey. Um, so it's very different. And I think you need you need to be aware of that before you go out on your own and do it. Um, but, you know, both ways you can have, you can achieve all your objectives, you can have a really fulfilling, wonderful experience. Um, so I think it's a matter of sitting down at quite an early stage, deciding which way you want to go and being aware of what is entailed in those two different ways to go about it. Um, Great. And then finally, for those who either don't have any polar skills, but want to go and do something in the polar environment, whether that's adventure or field research, whatever it might be, or for those who want to upskill for something bigger and bolder, how can they do that? Mm. Um, It's always go and do something small and cheap that you can get out of easily if it goes wrong. And then just build up. It's about doing that apprenticeship that we've talked about earlier. Um, you know, don't make your first trip a solo to the South Pole. Um, because if three days in you don't like it or you want out, you know, that's an awful lot of money and effort and uh for it to end like that. So better to go and build up your skills doing smaller uh, journeys that have less dire consequences if they go wrong. Um, But I think it's also worth noting that, you know, the polar regions, you do have a responsibility to justify your presence in the polar, particularly somewhere like Antarctica. Um, You know, we have such a huge impact when we travel there, and I know this might sound a bit rich coming from me, you know, like, oh, I've done my journeys now, so I can lecture about, you know, why you're going places. But it's something that, um, an awareness that has grown in me about, you know, if I'm going to an environment that is very fragile, how am I getting there? How am I justifying, you know, can I get there in a way that doesn't create such an impact? So things like environmental impact assessments are about as welcome as saying risk assessment in a group of uh, potential expedition people, but um, you know, they, they are becoming ever more vital and, you know, central to everything that you're doing. So from the very beginning, you know, think consciously about the impact that you're having. Is there ways you can reduce that impact and the justification for that? Um, you, you, you could say, well, I'm doing scientific research and that is justifying it. And you could say, well, you know, this is bringing about personal development or, uh, international understanding or you know there's any number of reasons uh why but i think you've got to consciously think about um the impact and the justification um, of going anywhere in polar regions particularly yeah i think that's very important and it's a great place to leave it thank you very much thanks for listening for more information on how to get started with planning your own expedition or field research project head to rgs.org This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft, produced and edited by Laura J. Cock for Terra Incognita Publishing, and Shane Windsor and Laura Melville for the Royal Geographical Society. 